Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 12th episode of Late Night Crimecast. I'm your host, Robin Steffens, and every week on Thursday, I'm going to post a new true crime story. I will cover cases that are local, cases that got a lot of media attention, and everything in between. Really quick, I want to update you guys that this will be one of the last episodes for this season. I want every season of this podcast to have 13 episodes, and in the future, I will probably only do two weeks between the seasons, but with the holidays coming up, I'm hoping to take off a month. So there will be two episodes after this one, episode 13, and then I'll do another Murder Monday. But then between that, there'll be a month and I'll probably throw in a Christmas special podcast. And then in the next year, I will continue with my regularly scheduled podcast in the beginning of January sometime. So that's that. You guys are all clued in to what's going to be happening in this podcast. And of course, I'll continue to remind you on here and also on Instagram. You guys can follow us on Instagram at Late Night Crimecast. Um, But yeah, anyway, let's get into this week's discussion. Today, we're going to be talking about the disappearance of Joan Caroline Risch. Joan Risch, whose maiden name was Bard, was born in Brooklyn, New York on May 12, 1930, to her parents Harold and Josephine Bard. The small family lived in New York for a while until Joan was nine. Then they moved to New Jersey, and it's there when tragedy struck. Sometime in 1940, both of her parents died in a fire while she was out visiting family. Following her parents' death, Joan lived with a foster family. It's been reported that during that time, she was sexually molested by her foster father, but it's really unclear because I do know that she was eventually adopted by relatives, but there's no hard details on that either or when all of that took place. But anyway, she ends up getting adopted by her family and she takes their last name, Natris. And so after that, She went on to live her life as normally as possible. She was able to graduate high school in 1948, and from there she went to Wilson College in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania to get a degree in English literature. She then graduated from there in 1952 and started working in publishing. She really worked her way up in the companies that she was at just to get her career started. And so at that time, she was working with Harcourt Brayson World. And first she started as a secretary, then she became a supervisor of all the secretaries, and she eventually became an editorial assistant there. So she worked really hard to kind of get her way up in that company. She later worked for another company, Thomas Y. Crawwell Co. And so she was basically living as a happy single woman and she was just working until sometime in 1954. And that's when she met her future husband, Martin Risch, at a Harvard football game. They pretty much hit it off immediately. Just two years after meeting, they got married. And soon after they got married, 
Joan left her career as an editorial assistant in New York City so she could settle down with Martin and start a family. And that they did. In 1957, she ended up giving birth to her first child, a girl named Lillian. Then just two years later, they gave birth to their second child, a boy named David. So the family ended up moving in April 1961 to Lincoln, Massachusetts. There, Joan was an active member of the League of Women Voters, and she was a housewife while Martin pursued a career with the Fitchburg Paper Company. While she was a housewife at the time, she spoke of wanting to become a teacher once her children got old enough. Unfortunately, she would never get to do that. On the outside, it would appear that Joan had the perfect life. She was beautiful, kind, and happily married with two children. She had the ideal family and seemed to be devoted to her family as the housewife. But does her disappearance suggest that maybe her life wasn't as picture perfect as it appeared? On October 24th, 1961, Joan's husband Martin got up early and left the house in his car to catch an 8 a.m. flight at the Logan Airport. He had planned a business trip to New York with the intentions to stay overnight in Manhattan. Shortly after his departure, Joan wakes up the children and serves them breakfast. After that, she takes her son across the street to the house of a neighbor named Barbara Barker. She then took herself and her child Lillian in her car a blue 1951 Chevy, to a dentist appointment. After the appointment, it is said that the mother and daughter went to a nearby department store for a quick shopping trip before heading back home. After arriving home, Joan goes and picks up David from the neighbor's house, and this is around 11.15. Soon after she picks him up, he's put in his room for a nap, and those naps of his would usually last until 2 p.m., so around 1 p.m., that same neighbor, Barbara, uh, she brings over her four-year-old son, Douglas, to play with Lillian. And so they're over at the Rish's house, and at around 1.55, Joan takes the two children back across the street to the Barker residence to play in the yard, and she tells them she'll be back. So Lillian and Douglas, they play on the swings during this time. Nothing is seen as strange or unusual. But about 20 minutes later, Barbara sees Joan running up the driveway and, you know, she's just looking through her window. So she's not necessarily close enough to see exactly what's happening. But she says that she saw that Joan had her arms outstretched and appeared to be carrying something red. And she had just assumed that maybe she was chasing her son who was dressed in a red jacket. But that's the last time that Barbara would ever see Joan. So this next part is coming from a completely different neighbor, completely different point of view. So around 3.15, Virginia Keene, the daughter of the next door neighbors, they got off, she got off the bus and she recalls seeing an unfamiliar car in the driveway of the Rishes. I can't even pronounce that. I hope I said that right. Um, but yes, she described it as being possibly a General Motors model 
dirty two-toned car with one of the colors being blue and I told you guys earlier that the car that Joan was driving was blue but that was a Chevy and clearly the neighbors would have recognized that car so this girl that she got off her bus she says she saw an unfamiliar car so keep that in mind for later now five minutes after that another local resident who lives nearby says that they had stopped to let a car back out of either the Keens or the Rich's driveway and so the girl Virginia Keene and her mother they said that there was no car in their driveway at the time so that implies that it has to have been the Rich's driveway that the car had been at. Keep all of this in mind about the car because it's going to come up again later but around 3 40 p.m. Barbara goes back to the Rich's house to drop off Lillian you know so she could take her own kids shopping she had other errands she wanted to run that day. So she drops Lillian off and she thinks she'll be fine. She just sends her off. Um, but after a bit, Lillian comes back and she goes and says to Barbara, mommy is gone and the kitchen is covered with red paint. So of course, Barbara walks into the Rich's house and she discovers that the red paint is actually blood smeared all over the walls. There was blood on the floor and someone had attempted to clean it up using paper towels and a pair of David's underwear. It appears that the telephone had also been ripped out of the wall and placed inside a wastebasket, that there was also the telephone book open to the emergency number section, and a table in the home was also turned over. The napping child, David, was inside his crib unharmed, but there were small traces of blood in his room, the master bedroom, and the stairway. There was also a blood trail that led from the kitchen to the driveway and stopped at Joan's car, which also had blood drops on it, along with a coat hanger resting on the roof. So after this discovery, Barbara calls the police around 4.30. The police arrive on the scene and they look over everything and surprisingly enough, the blood and the destroyed house don't point them in the direction of foul play. The detective on scene thinks it's suicide and starts to look for a body in or around the house. When he is unable to find a body, that's when he gets back up so they can search the area for Joan. They clearly were unable to find her, so they call local hospitals and ask to be notified if a woman matching her description shows up or has already been admitted. They then call the company that Martin was working for at the time to find out where he was, and once they got a hold of him, they inform him of the family emergency, so he immediately he changes his plans and he catches the next flight back home. Once Martin is back home, the police, they try to focus on the evidence in front of them and they try to map out who came in contact with Joan that day. Clearly Barbara and her child had, but there was also the milkman, the mailman, because they had both delivered to the home that day. Uh, but since they had delivered prior to her disappearance, they were only able to ask the male and milkman whether they saw something out of place. And both of them said that nothing was out of place, nothing was unusual. But the only thing the milkman was able to actually help out with was that he actually remembered there being a blue two-tone car at the house, except it was five days earlier. He stated that he had seen it at the house five days earlier, so there's a clear connection there. Still no idea whose car it is, but that's a clear connection. 
So there was also a dry cleaner who came to the home shortly after 11.15. That was the same time that uh, David had been put to his nap or around the same time. And so the dry cleaner, he too said that he saw nothing out of the ordinary. And so with just those clues to go off of, they really had nothing. Like no one saw anything out of the ordinary. And the only thing they had was that the blue two-tone car, which they already suspected was at the house before. They didn't have anything to go off of until they got to others who thought that they had seen a woman matching Joan's description walking down a nearby road that same afternoon. Basically, motorists on the road say that they saw a woman with a handkerchief over her head looking disoriented and hunched over while clutching her stomach. Witnesses also remember seeing blood on the woman's legs. And this is not just one person that saw this. This is several people at different times of the day that all saw the same woman walking down the same road with the same appearance. But no one actually pulled over to help her and she was never found. And since there was heavy construction at the time on that road, there's speculation that the woman could have fallen into one of those like excavation pits and was unknowingly buried. But that's like such a far-fetched theory that I just kind of count that out. So let's just go back to the crime scene and talk about all the blood that was found. It was later determined that the blood was type O, which matched Joan's blood type, but there was only about a half pint's worth, so it could have been caused by a superficial, non-fatal wound. There was also a bloody thumbprint on the phone mount, along with two fingerprints and a partial palm print on the kitchen wall, and none of these prints matched Joan's and they have never been identified. So what really happened? Well, Martin, the husband, the milkman, the mailman, and the dry cleaner man, they all had airtight alibis as they were all somewhere else when she went missing. There was also a neighbor that others had suspicion of, but he had an alibi as well that was confirmed by his coworkers. So pretty much they had no leads. But just as coincidence might have it, a reporter named Serene Gearson went to the town's public library to research similar cases as background. So she's looking at a book about missing people and guess what she finds? She finds that Joan had actually checked the book out in September, a month before her own disappearance. And another book, it's called Into Thin Air, that's about a woman who was left behind, blood smears and a towel when she went missing. Um, she finds that Joan had her signature on that checkout card for that book as well. So after finding this, she reports it in the newspaper and it turns out after having a look through some records that Joan actually had taken over 25 books during the summer of 1961 and many of them had to do with murders and missing persons cases. And even some of these cases involved people kind of faking their own murders. so huge that even after the police chief in town retired, he still continued to work to solve it. 
There are tons of people that have so many theories about what happened to Joan. Many people believe she died, but her husband, he believed that she was still alive up until, you know, he died as well. He passed away in 2009. So he never got his answer, but he believed that she was out there suffering from amnesia or some kind of mental break. Uh, but yeah, this case has just gone unsolved for decades and there are many theories of what happened. Obviously, there's always going to be the theory that she left on her own accord and that she possibly staged her own murder, especially since there only appeared to be a lot of blood at the crime scene. Um, but, you know, clearly we find out there wasn't really that much. Um, and then there's also the whole library thing. She could have been planning it for a while. Next, there's the theory that she was cheating on her husband or having an affair and that a jealous lover killed her. And this is actually the theory that I have the least faith in and believe the least because there's really no proof of another lover except for maybe that car, that two-tone blue car. No idea though. We really have no idea what that car is and who drives it. So there's still no proof. And I mean, there's hardly anyone who says that she was anything other than a devoted wife and mother. So it's a really hard one to push. Lastly, there's a the theory that she had a botched abortion and maybe died somewhere along the road that that woman was seen walking. And this one seems kind of plausible because everything kind of would add up. That would explain the hanger on the car and the woman walking along the side of the road with blood running down her leg. Even the emergency page of the book being turned to. Maybe the doctor that helped her to do this abortion decided last minute they didn't want to get in trouble for something like an at-home abortion. I don't know. I'm pretty sure it was pretty illegal back then to do that. Um, I'm pretty sure it's illegal now. But, you know, again, there's no body and no proof. And so it's hard to even imagine what happened to her. I mean, I think this is as far as I'm going to get with this one. I don't want to make too many assumptions because, you know, there are just so many outlandish theories. I just find that these are the ones that are discussed most often. And so, you know, if you guys would like, tell me what you think about this case on the Late Night Crime Cast Instagram page. I'll be updating it soon. And yeah, I just want to know what you guys think. But anyway, thank you guys so much for listening. And don't forget to tune in next week. Thank mm -hmm. you.